our campaign that we started a couple weeks ago is called Resilient Christianity. We're going through the book of 1 Peter. We live in what's been called a post-Christian culture, meaning that the cultural norms, the values, uh, the, a lot of the things that we take for granted or the air that we breathe in a culture are moving from being largely predominantly Christian values-ish and moving away from that into most commonly is just the self, right? Individualism, self-actualization. Uh, the self determines truth. The self kind of determines everything um, in our culture. So as we move and as we shift, which this shift has happened fairly quickly, it seems, in the last 20 years, which is pretty quick in terms of cultural changes. And that's just kind of the nature of the beast right now. Culture changes quickly because of communication uh, advantages and things move so much faster now that we're a global like economy. We know what's happening globally. Uh, things shift pretty quickly, and this certainly has as well. And for many of us, it's kind of caught us, caught us off guard, I think. And we've had to adapt and adjust in one generation on the fly. And so how do we do that? How do we adapt and how do we adjust? And now how do we live as Christians in a culture that is no longer dominated by Christian values and virtues and thinking. Well, 1 Peter was written to a group of Christians who were living in a pagan culture as well that was not dominated by Christian values and virtues and thinking. And so his challenge to them is to live a resilient Christianity. And so we're going to have to develop resilience as Christians as culture shifts away from Christian, Christianity into this post-Christian culture further and further. And what has happened is living in a predominantly Christian culture has made Christians soft, for lack of a better way of describing it, right? We become comfortable, too comfortable, in the culture that we live in. And then our Christianity begins to blend with the culture, and then when they shift or they split apart, and then we're like, oh, what do we do? Uh, we, we, we're soft. And so now we have to develop this resilience. Um, and for many of us, it is happening quickly again, and we have to develop it rather quickly. So we're talking about how to develop resilience as Christians. We've already seen from the first couple of weeks in this campaign is that believers are elect exiles in covenant relationship with God. And remember, we're going to talk about this throughout, uh, throughout the sermon today. But last week, we talked about how God has caused us to be born again into a living hope, right? and inheritance, and that how we are guarded by God for the salvation that will be revealed at the return of Christ. And because of all of this, we praise God, we worship God, and we can have joy, regardless of our circumstances, because of what God has done. So this theology is the basis of our resilient faith. We have to know this to be true, and to live like this is true. Now we're going to get into the how then ought you live, right? Because of this theology that we know to be true, how should we live? And we're going to read it all. It's, woof. <laughs> it's dense, man. Uh, Peter doesn't waste words in this letter. So we're going to read through it once, and then we'll walk back through it again, and I'll tease out some of the important themes. Beginning in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself, yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I warned you, it's dense, right? <laughs> now, on first reading, you're like, what on earth did he just say? <laughs> okay, we'll walk back through it, okay? He's got a lot of good stuff in there. And he makes five statements in here, five imperatives, five main verbs in this section. Remember, as you're studying scripture in the passage, the main verbs is usually the place to begin to find the big ideas. So he says five statements of how Christians should live in light of the new birth that God has given us. You probably noticed that theme time and time again. You've been born again. You've been born new. You're a newborn infant. You're an obedient child, right? He, he keeps bringing up these themes again and again. But he begins with therefore in verse 13. So when you find a therefore in Scripture, you have to find out what it is. Well done. Yes. I have trained you well. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, is a transition, right? So what he's doing is he's transitioning from the ideas of before into what is coming next. And because of this, now this is what he's saying. So uh, because of the theology that we talked about last week, God has caused his people to be born again into a living hope and an inheritance that he's preserving his people for the salvation that will be revealed at the return of Christ. Because of this, Christian, you should now live a certain way. <laughs> all of our behavior, all of the, the moral laws that the New Testament call us to live according to are rooted in a therefore, right? So in our church culture, we tend to want to do more. So like, God, just tell me what I need to do. So we go to the, we go right to the moral imperatives and what we're supposed to do. That's not what scripture does. Scripture everywhere says, here's the theology, right? Now, this is how you should live. We don't want to deal with the theology. We just want to learn how to live. It doesn't work that way. It won't be genuine. And you won't be resilient if you go about it that way. When push comes to shove, you'll cave. But instead, if we have this theology that we're building our behavior on, our thinking on, our whole life on, then we can be resilient Christians. So that's the first point. It's very simple. It has to be built on the theology that we talked about last week. Preparing your minds for action. I love this phrase. This is my go-to phrase for why we need English translations. Okay, if you're like, man, why can't we just read it right out of the Greek or translate word for word from Greek? Literally, this says, uh, gird up the loins of your mind. You can laugh. I said loins in church. It's okay. You can laugh. All right. It was a cultural idiom 
in that day. Uh, it just means prepare your minds for action, okay? It means uh, be ready to move. It's like roll up your sleeves, as we would say today. Like get ready to, to do, get ready to work. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's our first main verb in, of the five, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says, set your hope. Hope here is not just like a, a wish, a hope against all odds. I'm wishing upon a star. <laughs> That's not it. It's uh, an assurance. Uh, hope coupled with faith means that we have this assurance that what Christ says he is going to do, he's going to do. And we can know that it's true because last week he used the phrase a living hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So our hope is living and that it will never die because Jesus will never die. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we have this real, genuine, authentic hope that can never be taken from us. So he says, set your hope fully, not partially, fully. That means fully, right? On the grace that will be brought to you at the return of Christ, and we will receive the inheritance that Christ has for us. Remember, he's writing to Christians who are suffering persecution. They've been exiled from their home, most likely in Rome, and then sent out to these distant regions of the Roman Empire. They had lost their whole inheritance, and he's saying, hey, guys, Set your hope on the inheritance that you will receive through God. When Jesus returns, we'll apply all of these later. If you're wondering, like, where's the application? We'll apply it later. As obedient children, okay, see this theme again and again? Uh, obedience was the uh, primary characteristic that described a relationship between a uh, parent and their children in the first century. So as obedient children, this is who you are, Okay. This is who God has made you when he has caused you to be born again from the verses prior. You are now an obedient child. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So you have already been formed by the world, the culture that you grew up in, by your family of origin. Some of those have been in alignment with the way of Jesus. Some of those have not been. And so we have to be counterformed now. You've been formed, and now you must be transformed. So we have to go back to those things, and then go forward. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's quoting Leviticus 19.2 here. This is our second imperative, be holy. All right, so living as a resilient Christian in a non-Christian culture will require us to live with moral clarity and purity. And notice here, says, as he who called you is holy, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The standard of holiness is God. Okay? So that means, one, God defines holiness. So if you're, looking, if you're wondering what is moral and good and true, God defines that. And we have that in Scripture. That's why it's so important that we understand Scripture as God's revelation to us. That God has told us what is good, what is true, what is right, and how we ought to live. It's defined by God. And that also means that he is the standard of it. And so if we want to compare ourselves with somebody, we don't compare ourselves with one another and say, oh, I'm better than so-and-so. That leads to pride. Or I'm worse than so-and-so. That leads to shame. Compare yourself to God. <laughs> okay? Compare yourself to God. And when you do, you find that you never match up. But God loves you. 
anyways and gives you the righteousness of Christ and his grace and mercy. And so that's where we start. Don't compare ourselves with one another. We compare ourselves with God. And when he says, be holy in all your conduct, uh, the Greek word for all means all, if you're wondering, okay? Uh, all your conduct, be holy. Not just part of your conduct, all your conduct. And if you call on him as father, again, this theme, God is father, we're obedient children, he's caused us to be born again, who judges impartially, God is our father, he's also our judge, okay? So father is just a metaphor to describe the indescribable of our relationship to God. Uh, it's the best one, and scripture uses it a lot, but it's not the only one. God is also described of as our Lord, right? And here he is judge, who judges impartially, he's the good judge, who doesn't take a bribe, he, his sense of righteousness, remember, he's holy, he's perfect, he's good, he defines it, and so he judges impartially, according to each one's deeds. Because of that, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is our third verb, and the third main idea, getting at the fear of the Lord. This is an uncomfortable notion to us. Um, to fear God. But we see it throughout Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament, and we see it in the New Testament. Here is one of them, and in other places, like Hebrews. The idea is God is perfectly holy. Right? God is transcendent. God is so far above us. He is the judge of all creation. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And so, he is the one to whom we will answer for how we conduct our lives. And so this should produce... Uh, healthy, holy fear, a reverence, an awe in us. And this is an interesting dynamic that we'll get at later a little bit. But what he gets at in verse 18, he's kind of diving into this a little bit. Knowing that, okay, so conducting ourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Remember, the people were exiled. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Talking both to Jews, talking about the and to Gentiles, those who had lived a hedonistic lifestyle and those who had lived a legalistic, self-righteous lifestyle. He describes both as uh, feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Both ways of living are feudal. So whether you come from a super religious background and we're just all about laws and do this, do that, or you come from a background of just hedonism. Do whatever you want, whenever you want to. I define what's good, what is right and wrong. I'm just going to pursue pleasure at all costs. Both he describes as feudal ways. And this term ransomed is key for us to understand. Ransom was a common practice in the ancient world, and I think the best way to describe it is to think about it from the Old Testament story of the people of Israel. Uh, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and God ransomed them through the plagues. Right? He Brought the people, he brought Pharaoh to his knees and said, basically, I'm more powerful than you, <laughs> right? With the ten plagues. He humiliated them. But they weren't then set free to go do whatever they want, right? And be free to be self-determined, as is a cultural value that we have. Instead, we find a few chapters later at Mount Sinai, they enter into covenant relationship with God. So God is their redeemer who redeems them, ransoms them for them to then belong to God. Okay? That is the theme of the ancient world, that we are set free, ransomed, 
to now belong to God. Okay. And they enter into covenant relationship with him at Mount Sinai and where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Okay. So that is the picture of us. When we are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, we are then belonging to God. So that's why he says, conduct your fear throughout the time of your exile and how those two are connected, right? Because now we, we belong to God. We serve him now, all right? You're not ransomed with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The term precious sounds very similar to the ransom price in Greek. That's why he uses it there. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, linking us back to the Old Testament atonement, sacrificial system. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He's already said that the believers were foreknown uh, in verse 2 or 3 before, and now Christ was foreknown. This was God's plan of redemption from the beginning, before the creation of the world. He knew that Christ was going to be the redeemer, the ransom price, to set his people free. And God knows who are his people. It's all according to plan. So that should give us comfort. That certainly gave the people who were recently exiled great comfort. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave glory and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart is our fourth main phrase. Okay, see, I told you, I got a lot to get through today. I'm just, <laughs> just going to keep rolling, all right? He begins it in kind of an a interesting way in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Remember, we've already talked about the meaning of the word soul um, here. It, it means just like your source of life here and now and in eternity. It's not just the ghost in the machine, like the little blue bubble that floats to heaven. That's not it. Um, it's your life. It can refer to you, all of you. It's the deepest part of who you are. Um, and so the question is, what is he talking about here? He could be talking about salvation, about how believing in the truth of the gospel, then our soul has been purified. He could also be talking about discipleship. I think it's discipleship where he says, he's talking about how when we believe the truth and we obey uh, the truth of God and we follow his righteousness and live for him, then we grow into brotherly love, right? As we obey more and more the truth of God, our life, the deepest parts of who we are become more and more purified and holy before him. It's a discipleship process. Could be either one, though, and either one's okay. And he calls us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I love this. Like, New Testament authors constantly do this, where they just are like pleading with their audience, like, just love each other. <laughs> like, please, please love each other earnestly from a pure heart. And not this like fake love, not like the, oh, bless his heart love. It's like, no, like genuinely love one another from a pure heart. Since, again, the reason for this, that this is who you are now, right? You've been born again. You're an obedient child. You've been made new. And love, genuine, sincere love, is a part of this new identity that you have. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, eternal, through the living and abiding word of God. 
Then he quotes Isaiah 40, 6 through 8, all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass. Grass, grass withers and the flower fails. Like we, we'll die, right? But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. So, put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are things from your former life. Remember, you've been made new. So these don't work. These don't coincide with the new nature that you have as a new child of God. And when he says, put away the images like take off clothing and put it aside, um, which is a cool image of like, no, these, you're done with this. <laughs> like, take it off of you now. This is no longer a part of you. And all these vices are counter to love. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. I love this. Again, okay. Like, okay, we get it, Peter. We're, we're newborn infants. <laughs> We've been made new. God's our father. He keeps referencing it again and again and again. And our fifth imperative is long for the pure spiritual milk. Formerly in verse 14, he said that uh, you no longer have these former passions, uh, former ignorance, right? Now we are to long for the pure spiritual milk. The question is, what is the pure spiritual milk? Peter doesn't say, so it's kind of tricky um, what that might be. Um, but I think it's best to take it broadly as the things of God or God himself. So we're supposed to long for God and the things of God himself. The things that he's already mentioned, things like holy living, genuine love, faith, hope, fully in Christ, the truth of the word of God, long for those things, desire them. And even spiritual here, it means just like, coinciding with the deepest reality, with what is ultimately true and real. So what he's saying with this, of longing for the pure spiritual milk, is you've been made new. You're a newborn infant. You need food that coincides with your new nature in Christ. And that is the things of God. So stop longing for the former passions. <laughs> Don't long for those. Those are from your ignorance. Now long for the new things of God. Long for God. This is a quote from Psalm 34, 8, where Psalmist says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And when we long for the things of God and for God himself, we grow up into salvation. Right? Again, our soul is healed from all of the effects of sin as we long for the things of God. Man, you guys can come and get set up here. A big idea... All of these five things that we'll unpack a little bit more when I come back and apply it are rooted in this idea that we need to live in our new identity. <laughs> you are a newborn child of God. Even that last example, like that's how much we should long for the things of God. Think of a baby, an infant crying for milk. Right? That's how much we should long for the things of God. That's us crying out for God. Live in this new identity now. You've been made new, live like it. <laughs> and so we can't live in the former ways, the old ways, before we knew Christ. We have to live in ways that coincide with our new nature. And that's in holiness, in God's word and truth. In the hope of the new creation. Let's pray. We'll worship. And I'll come back and apply it. 
Father, Lord, we thank you that you've caused us to be born again. For this new life that we have in you that centers us, that grounds us, that these imperatives of how we're to live our life, Lord, are just who we are. I pray, Lord, that holiness would flow naturally out of your people because, Lord, it's just who we are. It's what we long for the most. And you would transform your people more into the image of Christ, we pray. Help us not be conformed to the patterns of this world, to our former ignorance, but, Lord, to long for the pure spiritual milk, the things of God, you, yourself, O oh God. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Right, a big idea is to live in your new identity. Right? You've been made new. You're an obedient child, uh, like a newborn infant, crave pure spiritual milk. All of those statements are rooted in this truth that you, God, has caused us to be born again. <laughs> and because of this new identity, then this is how we ought to live, that aligns with our new identity. And when we don't live in line with this, we feel this tension that this is not who we are. And when we do live in alignment with it, we feel the peace of knowing that we are living in the way of God. So to do so, what does that look like? It gives us these five imperatives of how we do that. One is to set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the return of Christ. Remember, this is the inheritance that we will have in the new creation when Christ returns. So again, fully, fully. Not partially, fully. This means that our hope is not to be full or partially in Christ and then partially in our wealth. Hope is not to be partially in Christ and partially in myself or in my abilities to make things happen, to adapt, to succeed. Hope is not to be fully. Our hope is not to be partially in Christ and partially in someone else. Hope is not to be partially in Christ, and since this is an election year, and partially in our political party, political personality, who we really want to win. If we are to be resilient Christians in a culture that is not, that is post-Christian, is not favorable to Christian values. This is essential. Without this, you will be a soft Christian. Your hope must be fully in Christ, as we were just singing. Because as we've seen through past elections over the last decade, when our party loses... It reveals where your hope is. And those vices, qualities that are not in line with the kingdom of God that he mentions in chapter 2, verse 1, slander, hypocrisy, envy, malice, we see those come out in Christians around election season. And in part, that reveals that your hope is not fully in Christ and in the return of Christ.
So we must set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the return of Christ. Then you can live a resilient Christianity. And your Christianity will not be distorted by the culture. Second, be holy in all of your conduct. Remember, all in Greek means all. Um, <laughs> we are obedient children. That is who we are, so we must live like it. Holiness is the result of God causing us to be born again. And it is a necessary result. It's not, a temp it's not an optional add-on <laughs> to the Christian life. And so remember, before we can be formed into the image of Christ, we must be deformed from the passions of our former ignorance. We all have these passions of our former ignorance that still exist and we wrestle with from our former life before knowing Christ. And so we must put those aside or take those off and put on the ways of Christ. And I love that description, passions of your former ignorance. My hope is that as you grow in your discipleship to Christ, you will see those not as things that you wish you could have had, and, but you still have Christ, right? But you will view them as passions of ignorance. <laughs> that those were part of my old self. It was ignorant. It was foolish. Jesus is better. The way of Jesus is better. Because we know that they're ignorant, right? <laughs> And they're foolish. Before knowing Christ, we could be passionate about our reputation, perhaps. But we know the foolishness of that because that leads to stress and anxiety. We could be passionate about our health. Which unforeseeable circumstances can take from you at any moment? It's foolish. We're passionate about success. But we know from watching successful people whoever we would deem as successful, that that doesn't equate to a full life or a healthy soul. It's foolishness. We're passionate about pleasure. But we know experientially that that's ignorant and foolish because it leads to emptiness and it doesn't really satisfy in the end. So we must be deformed from those things and put on Christ. And in Christ we find true satisfaction and wholeness. And so we find that holiness actually produces that satisfaction and wholeness and joy and peace. Far from just religious obligation and duty, it becomes something that we long for. And to help us in this pursuit of holiness, I'm lumping the fear of the Lord in with this one, as many commentators do, we must fear God. There is a way that you can Fear God too much that you don't come to God, that you view him as angry, spiteful, that we're afraid to come to him. But there's also the flip side of this, that we can't, that some have no fear of God, and that's also wrong. He is our Lord. He is our judge. And so we must fear him as well. Remember, he has saved us, he has redeemed us, and so now we belong to him. So there is this sense in which we should fear God. 
And in a church culture like ours, it's much more common that we don't fear God enough. <laughs> and we view God as one to be trifled with. And so I think the best example of this is God, God blessed me with such a great dad. <laughs> and growing up, <laughs> I had these two, I had both the fear of my father <laughs> and the love of my father, and the two worked fine, <laughs> right, together. Uh, if you've met my dad, many of you have, um, wonderful man, uh, very strong man. <laughs> Obviously, I have my mother's body type. Uh, <laughs> a little self-deprecating humor. <laughs> um, but when you shake my dad's hand, he's calloused and firm. <laughs> he's, he's a strong man. He's been through a lot. And in our home, he was the disciplinarian, right? And so as a kid, I feared the discipline of my father, right? And that helped me live rightly because I didn't want to be disciplined. And... That was uh, good for me. That was very good for me. But I also didn't fear to come and give my dad a hug. <laughs> right. Because I knew that he loved me. And similarly in our relationship with God, this, it's imperfect, this analogy, right? But in those thing, things, I think it works, right? To, we have to have this healthy fear of God, but also still know that he loves us and that we can come to him at any time with anything. And so the fear of God is in the sense of producing holiness, righteousness in us. Because if we don't, God will discipline us. And that's a good thing, right? But we should still fear God in that as well. And what I'm about to say, yeah, I mentioned that churches like ours, the tendency is far more towards um, lacking fear of God than it is towards overly fearing God. Um, this isn't for everybody. If you fear God, uh, great. But some of you maybe have professed faith in Jesus without ever intending to live a holy life. Like You could care less. Maybe you've been deceived in thinking that I don't have to live a holy life if I have professed faith in Christ. Not true. Scripture says it everywhere. Remember, it's a necessary result of our new life in Christ, being made new in him. And so you've just kind of pushed it aside or ignored it completely or just rebelled entirely because you don't want to. You need to have a healthy fear of God. You're putting yourself at odds with the transcendent, all-powerful God of the universe. And there's a healthy fear there of God's power and holiness, and he is the judge of all creation. Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews, in this context, he says similarly, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. <sighs> Not messing around, right? He's writing to Christians. He goes on to talk about how we've trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, by which we've been sanctified. We don't live in holiness. We're trampling underfoot the Son of God and profaning this new covenant. And we've outraged the Spirit of grace. 
He ends this section by saying it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So there is a sense in which we must fear God as well. Okay? Don't fear him that you don't come to him, but God is holy and God is all-powerful. And when we come to God, we must approach him with reverence, with fear, with awe. He is the God of the universe. And he is holy. And we are not. So the only way that we can even dare to speak with him or approach his presence or be brought into his presence in any way is through the grace of Jesus Christ and in God choosing to redeem us and saving us and making us new, causing us to be born again. So we need to maintain this healthy fear of God. Next, we must genuinely love one another. Remember, it just goes through these five imperatives. Live a holy life in the fear of God. Genuinely love one another. Put your hope fully in Christ. Genuine love is the most important Christian virtue, according to Jesus. Two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. One of the great lies that the church has come to believe is our discipleship is rooted in how much we know. Your discipleship is rooted in how well you love. If you want to grow in your discipleship to Christ, grow in love for the people around you. Grow in love for the people in your home. Grow in love for your enemies and the people that just irk you. <laughs> people have different ideas about the world. People that behave differently than you. Learn to love them really well, and you'll grow closer to Christ. Genuine love should characterize the Christian life. And this produces a resilient faith. A resilient faith is one who loves even their enemies. A soft faith is one that loves your friends and hates your enemies. That's not Christianity. That's not Jesus. We need to love genuinely. And next, long for the things of God. It says, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, and long for the things of God. things that we've just been talking about, these things will nourish your faith to maturity, he says. By these, you'll grow up into your salvation. These will help you mature. The other things, they distort your soul and are contrary to the new nature in Christ. We need to picture ourselves as a newborn baby crying out for the things of God. Longing for God, for the presence of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And the more we taste and see that the Lord is good, the more we experience the blessing of holy living. The more we experience the joy of having our hope, not on things here, but the joy of having our hope in Christ so that our faith is resilient and we are unshaken when things don't go our way. The more we experience genuinely loving people <laughs> and not expecting anything out of it, the more we experience those things, the more we taste and see that the Lord is good, the more we will long for them to recognize that that is the best way to live. That there is nothing better than living in line with our new nature and the way God has created the universe. As we long for holiness, then sin becomes less appealing. Instead of focusing on 
I need to stop this sin. I got to stop doing this sin. Start longing for the things of God. And then the sins will look grotesque in your mind. The more we long for love, the more we experience genuine love, and the more we long for the things of God, then the more we see things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, the more they just leave a bitter taste in our mouth and we despise them because they're heinous. And the less we view those as means to get what we want. We must long for the things of God. When we do, we become less attached to the things of this world and more attached to Christ. I read a quote a couple years ago that has really characterized my ministry over the last few years. And the emphasis that I have been preaching towards and leading us towards as a church. It's a quote by a guy named Antoine. He's French. I can't say his last name. I'm sorry. Um, he wrote, lived around the beginning of the 20th century. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. What a beautiful picture. And so my goal has been to help you just long for God for the things of God. So many times, like what, in conversations, what folks seem to be asking me is, give me, give me the magic pill. What's the, what's the one thing that I can do to grow in my faith? And foolishly, I've like succumbed to that and like tried to say, hey, do these things, right? This is the heart of it. Is a heart transformed by God. Your new identity, a heart transformed by him, and then you just start longing for God and the things of God. And then as you taste and see that he is good, all the former things that, the vices that you had been living in before, former ways of your ignorance just look grotesque. You don't want anything to do with them. When you see it in other people, you want nothing to do with those ugly things. When you see it in yourself, you will stop at nothing to weed it out and for the grace of God to fill you and remove that from you, and for the Spirit to change you. And start just longing for the things of God. What do you long for? What's your hope in? Is your hope in Christ, or is it your hope in something else? And are you longing for that? So church, just learn to long for God. Taste and see that he is good. Long for him, for his righteousness, the hope that is in him, and discipleship, Lord, we need you so desperately. Help us, Lord, to have these tastes. Help us taste and see that you are good. And to desire you, to long for the things that you give us, for holiness in you, for your hope that is in you, for love. Like a baby longs for milk. Just desire that. And through that, we'll grow up into maturity, as you promised. Lord, we just express our desperate need for you. And Lord, as we worship you, would you be honored and glorified in us. May our singing now just be an expression of our longing for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship our God together.